Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. This is Julie Henrik as the executive director of Sisters in Crime, and I am delighted to welcome Carl Brookins to the podcast today. Before he became a mystery writer and reviewer, he was a freelance photographer, a public television program director, a cable TV administrator, a counselor and faculty member at the Metropolitan State University in St. Paul, Minnesota. He's reviewed mystery fiction for the St. Paul Pioneer Press and for Mystery Scene Magazine, and his reviews have appeared all over the place, including Barnes & Noble and Amazon, his own website, and other places. He writes a sailing adventure series featuring Michael Tanner and Mary Whitney, the Sean Sean Private Investigator Detective Series, and the Jack Marston Academic Series. Carl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Well, I'm I'm I want to talk about your writing career, but before we start, let, let me start where I always start in this podcast. When did you say to yourself, I want to write a novel? I think that was when I was in the ninth grade. I didn't actually do it until I was in my 40s, I think, or my, probably my 50s. I, my first, I can't remember. See, there's one of the things. My first book, I'm going to look it up. My first book was published in 2000. Yeah. And I and I had spent two years, two and a half years writing it before then. But that's actually, it happened because of my wife. I'll tell you this story. My wife, who was a, was a, a brilliant publisher, a good writer, and a great editor, she worked for many years for the for the Minnesota Historical Society and published a number of books for them, as well as supervising their publications office. I had a had a tendency to complain out loud about things I was reading. I've always been a voracious reader. I read mystery fiction, westerns when I was a kid, um, and still do. I read all sorts of things. But in the fiction area, which is where, where I, my, my primary interests are, that's what I work at. But I have a tendency at times to talk out loud about a book that I'm reading, especially if there are things in it that I detest. I mean, <laughs> I really have to detest it. I understand people write books and get published, books published that, are, that run the gamut from really good books to not so good books. That's okay. That's the way life is. And... At one point, my wife, who was in the other room editing, said to me, stop talking about these books out loud. And if you, you know, if you really think you, th th these are so bad that you're reading, why don't you try writing one? <laughs> I said, oh, okay. She said, but before you do that, go and take a course. I said, well, I've had a lot of English courses in college. She said, no, no, go to the loft in Minneapolis and take a course in how to write a mystery. Yeah. Really good advice. Really, so good. I did. I met Mary Logue, the teacher, who's a good friend of mine now, and I met a lot of really interesting people, many of whom became good writers. And I took a course on how to write a mystery, and that really got me started. Although I have to also say, 
when I was a kid, probably the first time I got I the first time I got paid for a piece of writing was in the seventh grade. I think I won second prize in a in a contest. I wrote a Western short story, probably four pages long, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think I got a I got second prize, which was a fifty cent piece. <laughs> and that's and that's how it happened. And and the fact is that that taking that course from Mary Logue opened my eyes to a lot of aspects about publishing fiction that I didn't know because my wife didn't publish fiction. And as a result, I learned a whole lot about a whole different part of society, which was fascinating to me. And uh, here I am. Here we are. And you're right. Take Getting that advice to take a, a craft class is such an important first step. But it's when you're mid career or you know you've had success in other parts of your life it can be humbling to start um to realize how much you learn and and you know how how did you build your craft by doing did you continue to take classes i mean having your wife be a fabulous editor is is a gift <laughs> um but how did you continue to build your craft that's that's a very valid question uh one of the first things or we maybe not the first thing, but one of the things you learn in taking a craft course is how much you don't know about whatever the craft is. And I think that applies universally. I found there were that there were a lot of things that I did know about writing. I mean, I'd, I'd been working in television for years. I'd written television dramas and television stories and produced and all that kind of thing. But that's not at all the same thing. I mean, there are some similarities, but... I learned a whole lot about the craft and about how to develop a book. There are many ways you can do it. I have a friend in England who writes, for example, she she writes an outline, a very specific outline. A friend of mine, a well-known author named William Kent, Kent Kruger, started out that way, writing an outline. He'd write a 50-page outline. This woman in New York in uh, England would write an outline that was so explicit, even though it wasn't very long, she could write, she could wake up in the morning and say, I guess I'll work on chapter 50. Yeah. Or chapter two or whatever. I can't do that. I have to start at the beginning of the book and work all the way through it. I don't do an outline. And in fact, it became for several friends of mine who started out writing outlines too difficult to meet their publisher's deadlines by spending so much time writing an outline. So they just started writing the book and discovered that they could do they could do the outlines that went along. And that's what I do. I always end up with an outline, a chapter outline, but I write I write the outline as I write the book, which means not only do I do a lot of revisions to the to the book itself, but I do a lot of revisions to the chapter outline. Well, it this this fascinates me. How how different writers write is is I think one of the the great things about this podcast is nobody does it the same way. But exactly. um when you're doing that and so you're keeping the outline to keep track of everything. You're writing I always am amazed at folks who can do that because you're keeping the book in your head and and that's a lot to to do. Do you um you know plan a couple of chapters out or do you just is it organic? Do you have a sense before you start, you know, of the mystery? I mean, how how do you how do you start the book? Oh, I usually I start with an idea. Um and 
often it's a just a very small nucleus of an idea. Maybe I read something in the newspaper that triggers something. Say, oh, I see somebody did X to to a person, and I that could be an interesting story. Mm-hmm. And I'll think about it a while. Uh, I usually get these ideas all the time, and that means that it percolates in my head for a while while I'm usually while I'm revising whatever whatever my work in progress is at the moment. And various things triggered, and I'll say, well, that's the kind of story that because I write different series that my detective would really like. Or I got an idea, for example, I now am writing what I call my senior sleuth series. I was, this is how it happened. I was standing on a corner in Sandpoint, Idaho, waiting for my wife and daughter who were in a, in a store, just looking around at all the people Saturday morning. And I realized that they all looked, in terms of their hair, looked like you and me. Yeah. <laughs> we had white hair. 99% of the people out here in the street have white hair. Now, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, I see the same kind of thing in Minneapolis where I live. I, in America has a lot of older people. Maybe they would like a series written for them about them. So I created uh, a couple of retired people. One is a, a former Army intelligence guy. He's 78. And the woman he lives with is a former uh, dancer who uh, has traveled the world with, her, with a dance group and the USO and, and less um, polite groups, I would say. And uh, they get together by happenstance in Minneapolis and form a club, a club of two in which they solve strange problems for people. But because he has worldwide intelligence contacts, sort of like my uncle, he uh, is able to tap and is tapped by various agencies to do certain things. And that leads to interesting book and interesting ideas, I think, which end up being motivating pieces of each of my books in that series. So um, I think that it's actually um, older sleuths are um, going to be more and more popular as uh, the baby <laughs> boom age is is yeah, yeah. is getting older, and, and we want to see ourselves. Um, and so this idea, when when you get an idea for a book, you know, it sounds to me, or what I'm hearing you say, is that you got this idea and you you created a new. A new a new partnership in order to really um, run with the idea instead of working it into one of your other series. Correct. I just I just felt that because these people are not as physically active, mm-hmm. obviously because they're older. They don't run up and down the block and in in and out of houses and shooting people and falling down and getting hit on the head and then waking up in twenty minutes and going off and doing whatever they're doing. Uh, <laughs> No, it's much more intellectual. It's much more the conversations between the two of them are are much longer and more thoughtful, and they they lead to certain maybe small actions, or maybe they lead they lead um, um, Marjorie to, to go to the library. Mm-hmm. You see, or to look something up on the computer because she's really good on computers. He's a luddite when it comes to technology, uh, pretty much. So that's. That means that 
that the book that the books are really written for a more sedentary audience. Mm-hmm. Not not terribly sedentary, but more than a thirty five year old would be. Yeah, people who understand creaky knees and <laughs> exactly exactly. So you started when you first started, you you immediately started writing mysteries. Was it always, you know, because you read deeply in other genres? What, what, What about the mystery genre pulled you in? I think it was because of my background. Uh, I have an uncle who was for four years an undercover CIA agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he told me interesting stories. I have met when I was in the Navy. I was working in materials that were um, not available to the general public and not available to the general Navy public. And all of that intrigued me. And I've always been interested in in mysterious things. Um, I've I've always been interested in society as a mystery. Society has always been a mystery to me. Uh, when I was a young, I, this may explain it or it may not, and maybe this is just a story, uh, but when I was in high school, my, my senior year in high school, I was very active photographer, as a photographer for the, the school yearbook and newspaper and things, and also in college. And I was invited out of the blue by somebody I didn't know to shoot her wedding. And I said, sure. And I showed her other wedding photographs that I that I had. And we made a deal. We signed a, I signed a contract. I was doing wedding photography as a freelance photographer. And then she said, oh, and by the way, the wedding will be up north at the nudist camp. <laughs> I, and now, I understand this is in the 19, this is in the early 1950s. This is not a time, this is not when when everything was as open as it is today. Right. And I said, I don't remember exactly what I said, of course, but I'm sure I was shocked. And she said, if that's okay with you, you can can wear clothes or not as you want. And uh, it'll be a a regular wedding, except a lot of the people there will be naked. I said, okay. So I, and she said, and of course you have to keep your, your materials private because some of the people who come will not want it widely known that they are nudists. In those days, it was not exactly a popular thing or as popular as it is now. So I did and I went and I did and I did the wedding. And here's the interesting thing. In those days, it was a rule among nudists that you that you did not spend much time looking at other people's bodies any more than you would look at somebody clothed unless they were wearing something really interesting, right? So it was a late summer wedding, and when I got the proofs and had to take them to her house, there was a party going on among the people in that nudist colony, and they were in the house, but it was cold out, so everybody was naked in the house, and everybody walks around with their eyes on the ceiling. So they're not looking. They, you know, they would look down, look at you, look you in the face, and they look back at the ceiling because they didn't want to be caught looking at somebody else's body. To me today, that's just really stupid. I mean, if that's the way you're gonna, if that's your attitude, why are you wear? Why are you not wearing clothes? Why are you going to a place thing like that? You see. So and and that's just sort of odd. So I've you know odd odd things have happened. Um, my life has been 
quite open and interesting. When my mother was a child, when I don't know, when I was a child, my mother took me, would take me to the library, one of our favorite jaunts. It was a block and a half away when, once we moved to St. Paul. And the librarian would all say, okay, Carlton, there's the children's place. There's the children's niche over there where the children's books are. And then I would go someplace else in the library. And the librarian would try to round me up and put me back. And my mother would say, never mind. He can read anything he's interested in. And if he doesn't understand it, we'll talk about it. And we did. And that, I'm so pleased. My dad was the same way, although he wasn't as actively that way. But but um, uh, I was. It, it pleased me because it, it allowed me to see that life is what it is. And for some people, other than the, the truly evil things we do to each other, <laughs> um, your attitudes about certain things are yours. And if you're not intruding on people who don't like your attitudes, you ought to be able, allowed to live the kind of life you want to live. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why I've had so much fun and so much and spent so much time reviewing and working with women authors because for until probably the late 1960s early 1970s women authors did not receive the same kind of attention or approbation from reviewers and from the the publication world that they should have well and that's what started <clears throat> Sisters, in, Sisters crime. in Crime 35 <laughs> years ago. I mean, it's sort of coming up with an advocacy organization that said, okay, we need to we need to address this. That's right. And I think they've done a marvelous job. I have to say that. I just... When you've been a member of the organization for a long time, what 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 called you to become a member of Sisters in Crime? I met a woman who was, I think, the the president of Libby. Helmut, Libby Fisher Hellman, at a probably at a conference in Chicago or somewhere, and she, she talked about it to in casually over drinks in a bar, and we, and I was impressed by her. I was impressed by her books and by her attitude toward these things. Although I had known, I had been, um, I'm saying my own uh, honor, not honor, but whatever the word is, the. I've been a, an advocate for equality among men and women for a long time. I almost lost my job in a television station because I insisted on giving a woman that we hired the same pay that we had given the man that, that retired from the same job with the same credentials, and the board wanted to pay her less, and I objected to that. And so we we hired her eventually. But that... that uh, Libby, my conversation with Libby persuaded me that this was a, a a worthwhile organization in terms of its goals, and B, I could learn a lot. Yeah, yeah, and it's for everyone. I did, and I have, and I am. <laughs> um, <clears throat> as you are working and writing <clears throat> and continuing, we all continue to learn, but we start to teach you know, what? what's the best piece and the worst piece of writing advice you've ever gotten? And what's your favorite piece of writing advice to give folks? Uh, understand that it's hard. It's not a fair profession to be in. And it is very time consuming. That's mm -hmm. If you're going to be a successful writer, whatever your genre, 
uh, and I have a problem with genres too. Uh, you you uh, you need to plan to do a great deal of work selling your book and writing and editing and preparing the best book you can. It's a lot of time and a lot of effort, and you just have to be patient and persist. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the best advice I I can give. To uh, and and as you know, I do I I do a lot of reviewing. I'm a Vine re- reviewer for Amazon and uh, uh, for several other sites as well as my own. And the other thing I say is to to particularly young people read. I can't imagine how you can think how you think you can be a writer and not read. And I've met some people. I've met at least one really good writer, right? He writes really phenomenal books. I can't tell you his names. I can't remember it. It was a long time ago, long time ago. But it shocked me to learn. He said, oh, I don't read. He said, I don't read anything. So the only reading I do at all is is when I have to do research on something for my novels. Wow. But he was a really good writer. That That's unusual. Yeah. That's a... Uh, uh, that's what makes everything else work. You see, is these these occasional um, things that stick out to you. But for most of us, for us ordinary mortals, the more we read, the better writers we're going to be. Yeah, yeah. It makes reading a different activity, though, when you're writing because you don't just read for pleasure. You're also analyzing and how did they do this and <laughs> why is this working or what didn't work here and, and trying to figure it out i mean it's a wonderful way to learn as well that's right i thought a lot about about that when i got my first offer of a job to write to review crime crime fiction as i call it um because i i thought about that and i discussed it with my wife quite a bit and I decided that I could do both. I could read for pleasure, and then I could read the same book again, or at mm-hmm. least part of it. Uh, I I don't review a book if I haven't read the whole thing at least once. Mm-hmm. Most books that I review, I, re- I read essentially as if I'm reading it for pleasure. And I get pleasure out of reading books even when I'm doing analysis. So that part of my brain seems to switch on and off in ways that work that work well. So I... I, I get as much enjoyment, and I, I, you, you know, you you read not only do you read interesting and and fun things, but surprises happen. Uh, I'll tell you a story about that. I was because I was just looking for the book, and unfortunately, I can't find it, so I can't tell you her name. But you know who John Steinbeck is. Mm-hmm. What? Uh, he wrote this wonderful book about the Dust Bowl. Well, it happens that I was, that one of the worst days of Dust Bowl, I was in Oklahoma, standing on the porch of our house, holding, clutching my mother's hand as we watched this incredible cloud come up out of Texas. Oh. Goodwell, Oklahoma, which is way up in the, in the panhandle. That's where my parents met, where they, and when they had me in, in Wisconsin, they moved. That's where they moved because they were both working at the college there. And I, I remember that day. I remember my father with a cold scoop shoveling sand out of the living room the morning after a big dust storm. Okay, so and then there's East of Eden, and there's the the Dust Bowl um, 
books that uh, that Steinbeck wrote, really good books. A, a, a woman approached me and said her grandmother had written a book in 1937 about a family in the Dust Bowl. She lived in Oklahoma, and I'd like you to look at this book and tell me what you think. See, now, that, now what frustrates me right now is I cannot tell you her name or the name of the book because I couldn't find it in my bookshelves uh, this morning. But it's an absolutely stunning book. I think it's better than the book that Steinbeck wrote, frankly. And she never got it published because it was submitted to the same publisher at the same time as Steinbeck's book. Mm. And he, of course, was not, besides being a man, he was very well known already, and and so the publisher chose his book. Well, they should have they should have taken her book, and she would have been a big star at the time if her book had been, because it's an absolutely marvelous book. And I will figure out what it is and find it at some point and give you that name because everybody ought to read it. It's just it's a just absolutely a marvelous character study of the people and and how they had to deal with the Dust Bowl and then move to California. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is what's so interesting, I think, about fiction is um, we can tell the same story from so many points of view, and they're all true. <laughs> it's, exactly. It's different That's right. people's uh, experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're yeah. absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. You mentioned a, a few minutes ago that you um, have an issue with genre. I'd love to I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't read or write about mystery fiction so much. I write about crime fiction. Yeah. I think crime fiction covers some many different things. I think trying to pinpoint a genre is detrimental. I think it's detrimental to sales. People say, well, I only read cozies. Yeah. Well, how do you define cozies? I asked six people when I was really railing about this kind of thing a few years ago, and I got six answers that were similar but not identical. So yeah. your perception of what a cozy is, my perception of a cozy, the publisher's perception of a cozy are all not identical. So the bookseller at Barnes & Noble or at uh, my my favorite bookstore, Once Upon a Crime in Minneapolis, uh, they shelve it a little differently. Mm -hmm. Or they, they, they spend time thinking about where they're going to shelve and things like that. Why don't they just call, this is crime fiction. This may be fantasy fiction, which involves crime, the crime should be separate because that's a, that's a really different genre in, in a lot of ways. But generally speaking, I think you can call them all crime fiction. You can say this is this this book is this is a is a book of crime fiction that features an amateur detective. OK, mm -hmm. you see, mm -hmm. so there are differences, but. All of the police procedural, cozy, crime free, this, that, and the other kind of thing, I think that gets in the way of people finding good books that they'd enjoy reading. Yeah. That's, that's what bothers me about, about super categorizations. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, uh, that's a great point. I, I think that we limit ourselves if we, um, exactly. yeah. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And some people even limit themselves of I don't read women or I don't read yeah. writers of color or I don't read, you know, different points of view or perspectives. And and that's a limiting thing, too. You know, and think of what they're missing. I know. 
<laughs> really good books by people. Oh, I only read women authors. Well, okay, but at least you read women authors. But boy, you're missing some really good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have written different series and different, um, different, you know, um, adventures and things. Were there? Tell me about developing those different characters and those different series and and how that came about. Well. I've had a very life, and I was very fortunate to marry a woman who was really interested in all kinds of things besides books and publishing and and raising kids. Uh, and so we've done a lot of different things. I worked, as I say, I worked in television for almost 20 years. I have been a, a counselor at an experimental college in St. Paul, which, which started out with no majors and no minors, and we didn't allow, we didn't they didn't create majors and I, I learned enough to believe that that what people ought to do these days is they ought to go to college and get a liberal education yeah. at the bachelor's level that's all no majors and minors reading writing mathematics history yeah. things like that in in considerable humanities and you know in considerable depth all right so that i approached and so my life has been like that and so i i draw on that my wife decided I I learned to sail a sailboat when I was in the Navy in Florida. I never I never served aboard ship, but I but I was in Jacksonville and I met a man and he took me sailing and I fell in love with it. And I when I when we came home and I got married, I talked to my wife and she said, Well, I don't know, I'd like to learn to sail. And she discovered that piloting a small sailboat is a lot like driving a tractor on the farm which is where she grew up, you know, and she was, she was cultivating the, her dad's crops when she was 12 with a tractor and a cultivator. Oh. And she could handle stuff like that easily. So um, that led to, and those adventures in the Adriatic and in Puget Sound and in Australia led to my books about sailing. Um, my, work with the FBI and Naval Intelligence when I was in the Navy and my uncle's experiences in the CIA led me to um, very a lot of interest in intelligence services. Mm -hmm. After I graduated from college, my first job was writing a driver's manual and writing PSA's safety driving tips in uh, and working for the state patrol in Minnesota, and so all of that led to a, a, a really an abiding interest in police work mm -hmm. of various kinds. As a consequence, um, like I named my cat Sydney for Lord Sydney, who started the London Police. <laughs> His middle name is Ames for my uncle, who was in the CIA. And so on, and and other name is Spencer for that famous Boston PI. <laughs> so, though all my life experiences led to writing about them, my my uh, academic series, short though it is, is about a man who had a job similar to mine in a college that had no walls, no majors, and was was a real experimental operation in Minneapolis. That was a very successful one, I might say, more than more successful than my books, actually. <laughs> and so all of my life experiences have gone into 
my books, my experience mm-hmm. working with books. I think that's, you know, it's the old write what you know mm-hmm. kind of a thing. Well, I've never, I had to help a crew pull a dead body out of the tidal basin in Washington, D.C. once. But uh, that was that was not a pleasant experience, and I've never used that in my books. And I've never worked actively in uh, in active law enforcement, except peripherally traffic and you know, a few things like that, you know, and theoretical. I mean, I've, I've had a lot of people tell me, well, we can't talk about this, but you have to look for this over here because we're, we think there's somebody out there who has some information we want, this kind of nebulous sorts of things, which are, can be fascinating. And you, if you can manage to keep all of that, all that smoke and mirrors together, you can write really good espionage mm-hmm. but i found that really hard to do i prefer my like my detective has very specific physical characteristics and um i use that and he's he's more how can i say this he's more interested in in looking at people and deducing why they're doing what they're doing and why they're in certain situations. So it's very concrete. It's not, it's not theoretical law enforcement. It's concrete law enforcement. And that's why I like private detectives. I've met a lot of them. I've never met one. I didn't think was a really honest, good person trying to do, trying to do good most of the time anyway. (laughs) And uh, I think that's, that's why I do that. My 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 sailing books, my books about sailing, have to do with my experiences sailing with my wife and friends all over the world. And I, what I simply did was take those experiences and inject mystery or murder, mm-hmm. murders or some other kind of crime into them. Uh, my my book called called uh, what's it called? I can't remember what it's called. Uh, well, it's a book about uh, about the Caribbean. We sail in the Caribbean many times. Mm. I wrote a book about my couple finally going to the Caribbean for a vacation, and they at, at one of the places in the islands where they uh, they're in um, the Virgin Islands. They anchor for the night. He goes into the water, finds a floating fifty dollar bill. What's a $50 bill doing floating in the ocean in the Caribbean? Very interesting. What he discovers is that a smuggling operation is moving huge amounts of money and a boat, a sailboat sinks with bales of of, of counterfeit American money and he, and they get involved in in crimes and the crimes involved that, that are around finding those people and rescue them and that kind of thing. So that's how my books evolve. Mm-hmm. Often from an incident, I'll read an incident in the paper and say, "Oh." And you know, when I was in Sandpoint, back to the 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 first book, which is called Grand Lac, named for the the French name for the for the one of the lakes out there, um, has to do with the with the uh, uh, the nephew of a friend of Marjorie, who's the main character in that series. And her son is is charged by a corrupt policeman with a crime. 
so my characters go out there and I use the the mountains and the physical capability. And one of the principal incidents, which is is basically true, my niece and her husband and a group of people bought a mountain outside of Sandpoint. Uh, that sounds, you know, it's not a big mountain. <laughs> and they uh, uh, plotted land and they got an architect, you know, they did all the plotting for road and, and they discovered one of the people who always showed up and always signed the documents and things like that, but, but didn't really pay much attention to the planning. The architects by mistake had left him isolated in the, in the center of uh, halfway up the mountain with no road. And he claimed that the people had a, had a plot against him because they wanted to get rid of him. And that was how they were going to do it. So one night he got drunk. He drove up to the top of the mountain, got in a bulldozer and bulldozed his own road down the mountain through everybody else's property, trees, culverts, beginning of the roads. Fortunately, there was only one or two houses on the, on the property, just destroyed all kinds of stuff. Well, I used that incident in a much more fraught way as the motivating factor in in the book grand lock mm -hmm. so that's what you that's what that's what you do that's what a writer does so i i say to people be careful what you tell me <laughs> you might find it in my next book <laughs> so people tell you stories and all of a sudden you start glazing over and exactly. <laughs> reaching exactly. for a pen <laughs> yeah. and as a counselor for adult students at the Metro State University, I heard some stories that I really couldn't use because they were they were too awful or, or too strange. Yeah, yeah. Well, life experience, it all feeds, right? It does. That's exactly right. So your most recent book came out in 2020. You've had a, a long publishing uh, career. Uh, you know, what about it? And, you know, you've mentioned your wife was an editor and publisher. What about publishing has surprised you? Um, how undisciplined it is in, in many cases and how not surprising so much, but because that, that's the corporate contraction is what's been going on in the in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, I, it's very sad that, you know, when I, when I started in, in publishing, there were seven major publishers, all of whom published a lot of things, including fiction, is what I was interested in. Now there are, I think, three mm -hmm. uh, major publishers. Sure, they have they have separate um, titles or... or uh, the houses within the, the different houses, exactly. Thank you. Uh, and, but they're they're still they're run out of those major corporate offices, which have a great influence over what they decide to choose or not. And I've I've seen really good friends, really good writers, lose their publishers. Well, I've lost three publishers. I had a really good publisher, Gage, uh, Senage in uh, in Maine, published my first. My second novel uh, wrote me a letter, said, we really like your books. They're doing really well. Thank you very much. But we're not going to do this kind of book anymore. We've changed direction. I have 
two good friends who lost their publishers for the same reasons, not that their books weren't selling or that their books weren't good, but the publishers made decisions that mm-hmm. uh, based on, I don't know what, to, to not publish that that genre anymore. And so in the early 60s, I I got really tired of the whole thing and frustrated with, and also with the time frame. Um, I had one agent who didn't do anything for me. And my wife said, I'll be your agent. And she did a pretty good job, but that she was not a full-time agent and kept talking to publishers who weren't interested in my fiction, you know, unless it was historical fiction and I don't write historical. So um, that didn't work out. So now I publish my own books. And with the upspringing of of some of the the, the kinds of publishing that can be done now because the technology changes, uh, that works really quite well for me. Yeah. Although I'm encouraged. I was at a book fair last Saturday, last week, and uh, sold a lot of books, books, physical books. And that that was... uh, enjoyable and i enjoy you know you enjoy meeting the people but i'm also at the age where i can't now do a lot of traveling mm-hmm. i mean you may i don't know know if you remember or if you know it was there but i was a member of the of the minnesota group of three authors called the minnesota crime wave and who were the three authors ellen hart william kent kruger and moi <laughs> and Ellen named the group over a glass of red wine. And she, and we said, yeah. And we what we discovered was that Kent was great at setting up incidents, setting up events. Mm-hmm. He was, he could charm almost anybody into doing having us in for an event. And so he would do that and he kept track. And, and I was I was good at the business part, I kept track. I had the account. I kept track of the money, and I booked all of the all of the uh, motels and hotels where we stayed. He'd give me the schedule. Kent would give me the schedule and say, "Here's where we're going to go next summer, next July." Twenty-seven places in the in the Upper Midwest. I said, "Okay," and I plot them out, figure out who we're going to go, how we're going to get there, what kind of vehicle we were going to need, and book book the the uh, reservations. And Ellen was great at writing publicity and keeping track of all that kind of stuff. Plus, we really got along. We we just had so much fun together that that uh, we did it. And we did in the ten years we were in existence, we did uh, over a thousand events all over the all over the country, East Coast, West Coast. We did not go to the deep South. Ellen really didn't want to do that. Ellen's gay, and um, she was uncomfortable with uh, that because there there were things in publicity in the press at the time that, that during that ten years that uh, bothered her. And, but and we we sold a lot of books, met a lot of people, had a really good time. And uh, one of the things we did was we published an anthology. We're driving back from Wisconsin sometime in the middle of this 10-year period. And Ellen said, she said these kinds of things often to us. You know, I'd like to publish an anthology with the with good short stories by uh, a lot of our good friends. 
And we said, oh, Kent and I looked at each other and said, gee, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> so we we did that. And we published a book called The Silence of the Loons. Mm-hmm. The year 2000. This book has never been out of print in spite of the fact that the publishers tried to tried to bury it several times. Wow. Every time, every time he says, all right, we're going to take that out of print now. Some bookstore, someplace in the world sends him an order for 50 copies. We did what we did with this was we said several things to the authors. We will we will keep it for a year. And after a year, you can have the rights to do whatever you want with the story. The story has to have a murder. It has to be set in Minnesota. And you have to use five of these seven clues. A headless Barbie doll. A page torn from a dictionary. Footprints in the snow. The sound of a train whistle. A temporary tattoo. The scent of obsession. A wig and a soiled ballet slipper. Write your story with five of those seven clues. (laughs) That sounds great. It was a real challenge for a lot of writers. And we got, I mean, there's the the book still in print. You can find it anywhere. And and we we got, uh, we did, of course, we each had our own story in there. Actually, when you write it, you know, when you put together an anthology, you're going to have at least one of your, your own stories in there. And the people, all of the people who wrote, well, there are a couple of them have died. Some of them have gone on to other things, but uh, many of them became not because of this book or because of this story, but the grad their their careers were on an upward track, and they became really well known mm-hmm. well known authors. And uh, as did, of course, Mr. Kruger. Yes, who's yeah. on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> Well, and I I love the idea of the three of you doing these events together because you will all bring in different people. You're traveling together so that you're you're having fun while you're doing it. Um, And I think that for authors, that's a great message. You know, I mean, think about think about working with other people. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it is. We found it to in, in in a lot of ways. Working our own schedules because at the time we were all fairly young, fairly new in the business, and didn't have huge obligations from publishers and things like that. But uh, today it would be very difficult for Kent to do that because he has so many obligations, and besides, I mean, not to mention family and things like that. But uh, but if you can work out that kind of a thing, it's really very useful. But what I would say to people who want to do that: carefully vet each other. Be, don't. Don't try to set up a tour group with people that you don't really get along with. Right. I mean, you don't have to love each other, although I think the three of us really do love each other. We still meet from time to time. We get together maybe once a year for, for dinner and just to talk and, and uh, yeah, talk about our deals. But <laughs> but it it, uh, it it can be tricky. I've known several authors who tried to do tours with other people and it just turned out to be a real personal disaster. Yeah. I mean, it may have been good for their books, but it wasn't, wasn't fun. Yeah. Gee whiz. This is a, one of the only kind of professions that I know of in the world today in which you can not only be successful, but have a good time and do some good for people. Like yeah. give them something to do 
when they're not working, like read a good book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get away, get out of their lives a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So That's it worked a... really well for us. And... But I'd say pers- you asked, uh, excuse me, you asked about like persistence. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be a writer, you have to keep writing. It's hard. I mean, I know people who've written one really good book and that's it. For for various reasons, their lives have changed in such ways that they, they simply can't do it. I understand that. Uh, I also understand how frustrating it can be. Now, as I say, because of things that have changed, I find it, I've lost, I lost three publishers, three or maybe four publishers, who published one or two books and then went in a different direction from the direction I was going. Okay, I understand that. Um now I publish my own books, partly because I'm retired. I can't travel. I can't do the kinds of things that publishers expect writers to do. I just don't have the energy. Uh, and I don't want to die on the road, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, we just, you you have to persist and you have to pay attention. You have to be aware, not only what what's going on in the world, but you also have to be aware of what you can learn. You can learn so much from fellow writers. Mm-hmm. You can learn about things that you can write about from, from everybody else, but you can also learn a lot from fellow writers. Just in conversation at the bar, you go to BotcherCon, which I was unable to go to this year for the, which really, this last one, which really was frustrating for me because it was in Minneapolis, you know, practically my hometown. And, um, those kinds of things are valuable. Mm-hmm. You go, you go, and you listen to things that you've heard before. People, the people who talk, talk about what they know. We talk about, we talk about publishing. We talk about agents. We talk about editing. And the other thing, the other advice I have for young writers is: get your piece read, read it out loud to yourself. If you can, read it into a tape recorder mm-hmm. and let, listen to it. Edit and edit, revise and revise and edit and edit, and it sounds boring and difficult. And yes, it can be, but that's the way you get a really good book. And you get a book that's got very few or no errors in it, and chances are you're going to have a winner. Mm-hmm. And tell a good story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell a good story. It, you know, mystery fiction, crime fiction. You got a crime, you got to solve the crime, or at least most of it, and you got to bring bad people to justice. Whatever, however you define justice, may not be, you know, law and order. I'm I'm liberal in that regard. I I think people ought to do what they do, and the fact that that a that a um, a rapist gets killed by the mother of of one of the one of the young women he rapes, I can and gets away with it. That's not legal, but I consider that justice, mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. The feminine side of me, what my mother taught me. <laughs> well, what I'm also um, hearing is, uh, and and what I, I, you know, one of my takeaways from this wonderful conversation is is maintaining curiosity. Is exactly. is just. Don't stop being curious, and the, and that feeds you as a writer, feeds you as a human being, and it makes it a lot more fun. That's exactly true, and that's how you learn. I mean, yes, you can learn by reading things, of course you can, but listening. Mm-hmm. Stop talking and listen. Yeah. 
Yeah. I talk too much most of the time. I know that. But it, it is true that um, one learns a lot more from people. And it isn't just that you learn information that they're saying. You learn a lot about people that they don't realize they're they're giving to you right. by the way they talk, by what they talk about, by their attitudes, and by their physical movements when you're talking to them. Uh, I learned I learned a lot about characters that I could use by sitting in, you know, sitting in a bar at, at a conference with uh, with Libby and and Ellen and Kent and David Housewright and people like that, and and sitting at the meetings of Sisters in Crime of our local chapter. Um, the Zoom meetings are great; they're just not as good as in person meetings. Although although that's better than telephone or just you know, just just audio. Uh, on the other hand, as long as I'm editorializing, I I don't have any of my books as audio books, but I I wish I did. I think audio books are a great addition to the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. They in tech, you know, I agree. I I've become a fan during the pandemic of audio books. <laughs> um, tremendous fan. Yeah, a lot of people have. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Well, Carl, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for having it and and for all your insights and uh, inspiration. This is terrific. I'm going to put um, The Silence of the Loons in the show notes. And if you remember that Dust Bowl book, send it to me and I'll make sure it goes in the show notes for the um, podcast. But thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I, I had a great time. I always do in these kinds. almost always do. You're a great host. And uh, and I and you're representing a great organization. I think Sisters in Crime is one of the best players groups around. Thank you. Well, we're we're great because we have great members. So <laughs> thank you for well, being. That's, that's true. It's it's the membership that makes an organization. Work. Absolutely, absolutely. So thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.